This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And what can I say about Kevin Sugru? He has led insight and strategy for the likes of Carrot UK and IPG. He's only advised some of the biggest clients in the world. You may be familiar with brands such as Amazon, ExxonMobil, Lego, Lockheed Martin, Spotify, Tata, Unilever, UPS, just go down the list. He's now working with the guys at SimilarWeb on their agency proposition. I kind of describe Kevin Sugru as a cross between Don Draper, Andy Nairn, and Praro. Uh, super sophisticated, wicked smart. There aren't many people in the world that are as thoughtful as Kevin when it comes to insight, data, and brand growth. He's put together a unique career and his thinking and approaches to his clients' business challenges have made them just wildly successful. If you are interested in anything to do with consumer behavior, brand building, commercial strategy, data, insight, and media, then look no further because you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Kevin Segru. Kevin Segru is currently a consultant for SimilarWeb. He helps agencies to differentiate their clients' brands, build attention and preference using paid, owned, and earned media. Kevin works across both strategy and insight, guiding more effective marketing. At IPG Mega Brands, he worked with clients such as Amazon, ExxonMobil, Lego, Spotify, Tata, just go down the list of some of the biggest companies in the world. He's also worked with the likes of Dentsu, Millwood Brown, Bates Worldwide, and his experience includes work for number 10 Downing Street, BBC, Vodafone, and Microsoft, to name a few. He is also the winner of the Marketing Society Award for Excellence and manages the Planisphere Twitter feed and is a frequent speaker at marketing conferences around the globe. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Kevin Sagru, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hello, Nathan. It's good to meet you. Thanks for the invite. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for doing this. Let's start with your background first. You studied a DMA diploma at Imperial College London, working at Bank of Ireland's marketing department. What sort of career at that time in your life did you think you were going to have? So at the start, I was working in database building, direct marketing, advertising in press and radio predominantly uh, on the client side. Very much enjoyed it and very quickly recognized that I knew absolutely nothing. And there was a huge variety of different types of marketing discipline to learn from. And what really appealed to me was understanding how to get the best out of the different components in working together rather than just being a siloed specialist. So what I've set out to do is have the longest apprenticeship in uh, marketing memory as such. I've spent the last sort of 25, 30 years um, learning direct marketing, advertising, design, digital, sales promotion, how to work as a client, how to be in the agency, how to work as a, uh, a partner in the digital domain, which is what I'm doing now in, in similar web to become someone who isn't necessarily the expert in any one thing, but the person who spots the opportunity when you bring different people with different skills together to solve a problem in a really interesting way. It's the Swiss army knife of marketing. So <laughs> give us an example of kind of what, what that looks like in terms of, you know, work that you've delivered for a client or an interesting client challenge 
maybe that you can recount and how your varied interests, skills, background, and particular unique set of skills in a, in a very kind of uh, Hollywood <laughs> um, <laughs> Hollywood um, film. Yes, indeed. <laughs> how does that materialize in terms of work that you've delivered for a client? So the, the benefit, to be honest, is it's given me the um, the range of options. Ha- having gone through that, that learning process and working with some of the best people in the industry, it's given me the option to be able to perform some, uh, should we say, triage and rapid surgery very quickly where it's needed, as well as be able to pivot. And when you work on bigger projects that have more time, more the ability to call on resources, to be able to structure those to, to create a framework that's going to build success for a, a much longer uh, level of engagement with a client. If I give you uh, an example, uh, perhaps, of how I've been able to influence a conversation very positively, very quickly in the moment, if you like, for a a client. It's um, an example when working with Waitrose. Um, I had the pleasure of working with them while I was at John Brown and I worked alongside uh, agencies uh, such as Miles Calcraft on the advertising side and Manning Gottlieb on the media side. The amount of trust and openness between working across those agencies was immense and it allowed everyone to have open conversations and contribute and let the client ask questions in the open that perhaps they may not have done to as wide a group of different agencies. So I was fortunate to be uh, informed by the Waitrose client just as an aside, oh, we're thinking of doing something really interesting. And the example they gave was a very Waitrose way of thinking at the time. The example they gave was they had a new idea that they were thinking of calling cupboard essentials because they understood their existing customers so well. They knew they just they weren't just cooks. They were more like chefs. They would have um, a store, a larder with items in it, which allowed them to turn ordinary everyday items into meals that were really enjoyable and what they were really talking about was things such as spices and herbs and 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 rubs and things that you would if you like add to dishes to be able to turn you into a very credible cook with the most basic of ingredients very quickly now that is a very waitrose way of thinking and is marvelous for for people who like to do that i do that myself for example but the opportunity for them from my point of view wasn't cupboard essentials The thing that the business needed to address was broadening the appeal of Waitrose to become essential to a much wider audience. And so my immediate response there and then was, this is really interesting, but we need to make a much broader range of products essential for a wider audience. I want bread, cheese, milk, meats, um, fish. I want all the staples to be available in an essential range that more people can come in and enjoy from Waitrose. That for me is a much bigger um, priority to appeal to a much wider audience. And that's where the conversation was left. Now, the great thing when you're working with such wonderful other agencies is they have bright ideas too, and they're already working on something a little bit similar that I hadn't been aware of. Within a few months, the Waitrose Essential line launched and they achieved 17% additional sales in their first year. And they went on to win a Marketing Society Award for Excellence as well. So I, I won't claim that as my second one, but I will claim that I was there uh, part of the origination of the idea that absolutely transformed what was a niche premium supermarket into one of the mainstays of the UK high street. That's a fascinating example, and thank you for sharing it. And, and you've worked with tons of consumer brands across many categories. 
Talk about some of the principles over the years that you've used to deliver growth for your clients, both on the agency and, and the brand side. I mean, what what are the principles that you're always holding dear that you keep coming back to time and time again that allow you to deliver meaningful growth over time? So um, just a, a few off the top of my head that would instantly come to mind. Uh, first of all, having excellent listening skills. Second, having an immense sense of curiosity and not letting things lie, actually going further to find out what makes things tick, how, understand how things work, why they work, and understand the people who are buying the product, how the product is made, how it's produced, packaged, presented, distributed. Don't just focus on the Marcoms. If you're just looking at the marketing communications, you're only understanding the superficial, often first contact uh, for, a, for a client or a customer, I mean, with mm. a, a brand, but not actually then the full experience that then travels along the journey for purchase as well. So actually having that in mind is very important, but ultimately being clear on the objective. Once you understand what the objective is, focusing in on that really helps whichever client you're working with. And that's a really good point, actually, because a lot of a lot of agencies uh, you know, depending on whether they're an advertising agency or creative agency, what have you, you know, the solution that they specify to clients always leads back to their own service offering. And they tend not to look at the whole, you know, four P's in its entirety. They tend to just focus on their bit, which is, which tends to be the communication bit, right? The, the promotion bit. Absolutely. Pricing, place, product, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to give an example of, of that sort of thinking, if you like, um, I could mention that um, the work that I did uh, a good few years ago with, with Courvassier was, was fascinating because it started with the client making sure we understood how the product was made, where it came from, how it was packaged, distributed, the pricing, who the customers were, what their experience was at the moment, uh, and what then the objectives were of the business. And, and that in-depth briefing and experience of, of understanding that the uh, the company then was absolutely pivotal to understanding the different elements of the marketing mix and not just the Marcoms is important. Um, the example from a good few years ago, so I feel comfortable sharing it in the public domain, uh, was with working with Corvassier. So the Corvassier client was absolutely wonderful at making sure that the agency were not just briefed on what the objective was, but actually took us through the process of um, growing the product and turning it into the the cognac, the bottling, the pricing and distribution, understanding who the consumers were and really um, allowing us to live and breathe the world that Corvassier operated as a company and how their customers enjoyed the product rather than just a brief on a piece of paper for two pages uh, that explained what their objectives were in a very distant sense. So we live and breathe the experience and that led us to be able to reveal insights and do further work that ultimately led to a complete turnaround for the performance of that company. For the first time in 30 years, they had growth within the first year of working with my team uh, compared to what they've been doing before. So just on that example, then, I mean, it sounds as though the client had um, sort of slightly longer time horizons than what <laughs> some clients tend to have. You know, here's the brief and we want growth now in the next three months, deliver it you know, deliver it for our, our quarterly earnings. How much of what you're doing with clients and that example specifically is about kind of long-term brand building, which isn't easy to measure on a spreadsheet, takes time, takes investment, all the rest of it, as opposed to kind of the shorter term performance marketing, bottom of the funnel type stuff, which is generally a bit more bland, could I say, and sort of less interesting from a creative point of view. It's a really good point. 
One of the key things that I do is introduce, if it's absent, a balance and a, and a respect for the long term, as well as a complete understanding and appreciation of the short term measurables, that, you know, that what, what we've got to deliver tomorrow. There's a lot of evidence you'll be aware of, things like how brands grow from uh, the Ehrenberg Bass uh, research and IPA papers, et cetera, with Les Binet, et cetera. You'll have tons and tons of evidence that basically shows you've got to make sure you're doing more long-term work than you're doing short-term work. That doesn't mean that you don't hustle and you don't create some stuff that goes out very quickly uh, and that still can be very incrementally effective is the way I like to word it. You know, it pushes the needle forward, but don't expect the world to change tomorrow. And that's an absolute valid part. In a sense, it's the thing that you tackle first, you know, the, the stuff that's being delivered quite literally tomorrow has to be done first, in part because it builds the relationship and trust with the clients that you're working with, but also gives them some breathing space, sometimes to feedback to their colleagues that what you're doing is having an effect and therefore they should listen to you perhaps a bit with a bit more trust and helps to provide the evidence that helps to fuel trying some things that are new and different as well. Right. So you need the data so that the marketing guys can take it to the CFO or, you know, the, the other people in the leadership team to go, hey, it's working. See, it's it's worth investing in this marketing. But also they need to be able to have that in order to kind of invest in the the longer term brand building stuff that takes longer to kind of measure. Absolutely. If you're working with a client whose um, finance director or boss believes that marketing is a cost center, then you've got to actually move the needle absolutely drastically because they've got to realize that you're actually a profit center for the business. And the way that you do that is through brand measures for long term as well as short term sales engagement. So talk about the impact then of creativity. What role does creativity play in all of this? And how can creativity move the needle forward, both in terms of that kind of broad top of the funnel brand building piece? And also, you know, what effect does it have on the bottom of the funnel performance stuff as well? For me, creativity is not just the campaign. Creativity is or being creative is something that every member of the marketing team can contribute in a relevant way towards. It's about understanding what the ultimate benefits are from marketing that, that really then fuel sales and brand growth by being distinctive, innovative, different by ensuring that there is engagement and that you're measuring the scale of change in a wider growing audience. These are things that are really positive no matter what type of activity you're doing. So whether you're talking about um, an SEO campaign or whether you're talking about a TV campaign, um, they still use those sorts of metrics um, to actually register the effect. Are you reaching more people? Are they spending more time with your, your product or your service? Are they actually engaging with the communication in a deeper way? Are they recommending you? Um, these are all things that are universal. So I'm going to ask something slightly controversial because I know your background is in, is in data and, and insight, but, but I know you're also a big fan of creativity. Does the data scientist matter more than the big creative idea? And I ask that because, you know, more and more we're being asked to justify the performance of our campaigns and ideas even before we've gone sign off for the, you know, for the budget. Does what matters more, in your opinion, the data scientist or the big creative idea? The big creative idea can change the success of a business in the short to midterm far more than most digital reports. However, 
if you're going to be working at the level where you're allowed to come up with a big idea, it often means that you've got the housekeeping in order, which means you understand the numbers, you're reporting the analytics, you understand how the competitors are performing less well than you are because of the, uh, the evidence you're able to put on the table. So I see that they, they aren't necessarily working at odds with each other. Uh, from my point of view, data scientists provide space for the creatives to be creative. And also with that creativity, I mean, you need to spend money so that people see the creative. There's no point having the world's best creative idea if, if no one ever sees it. So so what role does kind of amplifying creative and advertising have on the effects of, of, of a creative idea? Yeah, so we, we're really talking about um, the work that I've done more in, in media agencies and and how uh, reach is, is ultimately the, the thing that should be at the top of the agenda for, for marketing directors they need to reach more people more frequently as relevant to the objectives that they're running against um, it's much easier to do that in many ways through digital activity it, it, with the current ways of working uh, it's easier to report that traffic flow um, but the truth is of course that other uh, media channels are able to reach a much wider audience more quickly still even today uh, than digital if you have a short-term need. Um, the example that's often given to me that I, I still quite like is, is the uh, gorilla ad by Cadbury where some people will say, oh, well, look how many people viewed the Cadbury gorilla ad on YouTube and they're in the millions and it's great. But it's in the millions after over a decade now, whereas it reached larger than that number in the first week the ad ran on TV. Mm. So if you're after the scale of audience to influence as many people as possible quickly, there are roles for other media channels, not just to say that TV is great. <laughs> but so going going back to the argument, TV, TV is great. I mean, so, but the argument for a very long time has been people don't watch ads, millennials don't watch ads. It's a waste of money advertising on TV because no one's seeing it. They're all on their smartphones, but actually that's not true. There's still a place for TV ads in this world. And they're arguably now more important now than ever. What what role does TV play in the amplification of of um, creative thinking? Well, there's, for me, there's, there's three things uh, at, at play here. One is um, TV is inherently a visual medium, which has the ability to engage an audience's emotions very, very quickly, very, very clearly. And that's something because of the scale of, of some of um, videos or, or a smaller uh, formats, particularly in digital, they don't always connect emotionally as cleanly as well as quickly. Um, and so that, that's, that's one of the things. The second thing is you're looking for um, TV to not necessarily be the only answer. Media works most effectively when multiple channels are working in harmony together. You know, it could be uh, the same campaign or the same idea expressed in relevant ways for different channels. And when you do put TV with digital, with press, with outdoor, you see the uplifts that are generated in, in core metrics, you know, whether you're talking about uh, engagement, purchase intent, whether you're looking at recommendation, these things all measurably improve by getting the, the channels to play together. The other thing is um, the ability of a format like TV to have a longer story to tell. And that works also uh, in digital video as well with longer, but don't expect everyone to hang around and watch that full length story, particularly once you start pushing over the, the 40 second mark these days. So in, in your mind, I mean, going back to the 
the pandemic, which we're actually all kind of in. So we're not, <laughs> we're not past it yet, but you know, there was a lot of cheap media to be had during the early days of, of the pandemic and, and TV advertising actually was probably the cheapest it's probably ever been in, in like a, a decade. I can't remember the, the exact stats, but there were still a lot of brands that weren't taking advantage of that cheap, cheap media and decided to kind of keep their money in their pockets and not spend at all, which I think was a big missed opportunity. Who in your mind were the winners and losers in the pandemic? And, you know, in light of the fact that there was so much cheap media around, talk a little bit about the missed opportunity there for a number of brands. Well, let's let's start that maybe with, um, rather than just my personal point of view, purely by chance today was um, Kantar's Brandsy uh, presentation, and, and they included inside that the top 75 uh, brands in the UK that have, have uh, improved over the last year. One of the things that I quite liked in some of their data that they were sharing, they were talking about the brands that had progressed or, or had actually come unstuck as such through that. I would like to dis- discuss, uh, I guess, uh, an idea around that, which is is related to the data that we also see at SimilarWeb, where I would I would call the, the winners either push brands or pull brands. And what we're talking about here is push brands are related to how people's behavior had to change because of lockdown. You know, once you were no longer traveling to uh, an office or normal place of work, a school, whatever, to do your job, uh, and you had to work from home, you were pushed into living a different sort of life. So it was the brands like uh, parcel shipping and online delivery, payment networks, food and beverage utilities, you know, these, these sorts of brands that were performing very, very strongly indeed because of how you were pushed into living in that way. The pull brands were the ones that were offering escape for the customer. So here you're you're actually um, being able to bring entertainment, stress relief and comfort to people. So the uh, the media and entertainment brands performed very well, as did online gambling, alcohol, uh, fast food. To be honest, that's not necessarily an attractive list, but they were comforts that people reached for during this period. <laughs> Martin uh, Guerreria, uh, I can never pronounce Martin's name correctly. Apologies, Martin. Uh, but he's a good contact uh, for you, perhaps at Kantar, for them to talk about their data. But the thing I, I guess I'd, I'd bring to life through my own observation as well was perhaps what I'd see as a, a missed opportunity for one particular brand. I joined SimilarWeb um, roughly a year ago. So it was just around the time as we are now that kids were going back to school. And when I joined the company, I was given access to the platform we have to look at people's behavior online. And the thing that that struck me when I was thinking about how I was starting to see the kids going back to school is I wondered how people's behaviors were changing around that. And so the the rather unusual thing that that came to me was let me have a look at at the brand Calpol and see over the last year what's been going on in that brand's world in terms of online visits to their website. And and what I found was uh, sort of an interesting story. You can appreciate that in the the run-up period after lockdown, there were parents who were working from home, their kids were not at school for months, and you can imagine that starts to cause some tension uh, and fractious moments. You know, people like us having these uh, Zoom-type calls right now, you don't want to be interrupted by the kids. Uh, The kids are getting very bored. And what was happening over time was that CalPol searches online were going up and up and up during this period. Now, this is interesting to me because if you think about the the sort of the other wider behavior, both the parents and the kids are not really going out. They're not exposed to as many bugs. They're not meeting as many people. So they should, in theory, be healthier if they are staying at home. They shouldn't necessarily need something like cowpole as often. But 
because of the way that parents were reacting, which is, I need a comforter, a soother for my small child who's screaming in the background. They were starting, I believe, to use Calpol in that that way to help soothe the tension of the moment that they were enduring. And then the interesting thing for me, which which was perhaps a missed opportunity for the brand, is then when you reach that moment that parents were cheering for back to school and the little kids can go off again, this is the time where, if you think about it, those kids have been home now for months. They've had less ability to build up immunities to just coughs and colds, little bugs. Not, I'm not talking about COVID here, but just to generally maintain their level of, of uh, immunity. Um, so the system's open to more attack and the kids are being thrown back into the school environment. Admittedly, it's more a more controlled environment, but they're still meeting dozens of other kids every day. And at this point, when you look at the search online, interesting cowpole crashed. So at the point where in theory, people should have cowpole ready to give the kids because they're more likely to catch a, a bug that needs paracetamol to treat. Interesting. Yeah, then they, that was the point where the interest in the brand crashed. From oh. my point of view, if I was cowpole, I would have been running a campaign saying kids are going back to school. They need protection from those small coughs and colds, you know, keep them going, keep them at school from these sort of small sniffles. That was the opportunity for the brand rather than let parents just use it as a pacifier. Really interesting. I can tell, you know, we've got an eight-year-old and um, during that time we contributed significantly to the market share of Calpol because we went through (laughs) a ton of it. And um, yeah, I I can testify to that. It was definitely a pacifier morning noon and night probably yeah you won't have been alone a bit too much cowpole but yeah. <laughs> he's he's fine as I long think. as as long as he's not asking for cowpole shots on a friday night you're fine it's okay <laughs> so you mentioned similar web there we know that you're a consultant for for similar web you've you've been there about a year as you say i know about similar web from my time working at a content agency in about 2000 15, 16, around that sort of time where we use their data to sort of benchmark clients' uh, sort of online profiles with uh, another, you know, a, a competitor's clients for pitches, that sort of thing. But I know the service offering and the product set has evolved somewhat since then. So tell us a little bit about where Similar Web are today. Who are they? You know, what are their, you know, what are their main services? Who are their main clients? And, and what problems are you helping SimilarWeb solve? Sure. I know that you've had another conversation with my colleague, uh, Jess Bohm. So I'm, I'm sure there may be some some conversation you'll, you'll have through through that uh, discussion as well to sort of uh, interweave here. Uh, wonderful. But um, in, in terms of uh, f- from you know my take, have, having been here nearly a year, we're a digital intelligence business. Uh, we actually monitor all internet traffic around the world across over 150 countries, across all major industry sectors. Um, my particular team, focus specifically on working with agencies. So we're in the business of helping agencies use digital data to help their clients better. Uh, We look at not just website traffic for all competitors. So instead of say a a Google Analytics like scenario where you're just looking at your own data, we're talking about looking at the whole marketplace uh, in one system. Um, We also look at all um, search keywords, display, video, uh, and some social media activity as well. Um, The the big opportunity, to be honest, is is working with um, agencies. I I get the opportunity to to meet with um, their strategy, research, analytics, and, and media 
people as well as, well as some of the client service teams, um, that the people who are using our uh, tool have the expertise already in knowing their client and what their client's objectives are and already working, um, you know, with move, moving mountains for, in, in their own respective way to actually help their client perform better. What we provide is an additional context point of data to compare against and it's through comparison and diagnosis you start to reveal insights which inform your strategy and allow action uh, which is more effective um, so we we don't we don't provide um, all of the answers we help contextualize what you're already doing and show you where opportunities are to perform better quite fascinating kevin i could speak to you about this all day but we're fast running out of time we're going to have to get you back on on the show to to finish the conversation or at least continue the conversation. <laughs> but I can't let you go without asking our favorite questions at the end of the show. These are the questions that we ask sure. all of our guests. So I'm excited to ask you some of these as well. Let's start with a nice, easy one for you. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, I think the, the biggest failure that I, I, I happily reveal to everyone is my ability never to know enough languages um, because of the, the international work that I'm involved with. I've been uh, put in situations time and time again where I have to apologize for only speaking English. Uh, and that, that's something that I regret. I wish I, I wish I was conversant in something else as well, because there have been times and places where it would have helped. It's so bad that we only speak English. I mean, when everyone else around the world speaks at least three or four different languages. Yeah, it's it's frankly an embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not great. Which languages would you hope that you? <laughs> you don't know where to start, even do you? And this this is it. My my day could mean that I'm talking to people in twelve different countries. It you know, so it's it's Definitely. it's not that there's one answer either. Um, that there was a movement for Esperanto back in the day, but obviously that failed. So I I really don't know where to start apart from to say sure. the, the the most common ones I think are probably for me, um, Spanish, Russian, German, and Japanese. Uh, and Chinese, that they're, they're the ones that most commonly I find I, I, I would have preferred to have had some some uh, skill there. Yeah, definitely. Good shout. Tell us about your favorite, some of your favorite books. I know this is going to be hard for you because I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you and it is just extensive. Oh, I never read. Oh, right. It's just it's just there for show. <laughs> <laughs> tell us tell us about some of your favorite books fiction non-fiction whatever all i'm going to do is is, is pick one of, of the book that i've just read so that's that's why I'm, I'm mentioning this one so this is um paul feldwick has written a follow-up to uh, a very okay. entertaining and, and and you know useful for any marketing agency as well as uh, people who work in marketing who want to understand the different philosophies and approaches that people have created to providing advertising or producing marketing uh, communications that that book is is sort of one of the seminal ones uh, that, that i would i would recommend the book that i've just read is is What's his follow up which is is a this one is mm. why does the peddler sing and why does does the peddler sing follows up from the anatomy of humbug and builds on the idea that advertising in all its forms should try to regain the lost ground in having entertainment and engagement appeal and an effect as well, um, rather than fall into the trap of becoming very, very serious uh, and mundane. And is that because, uh, you know, at the core of it, we're all emotional, irrational human beings that just want <laughs> to be tickled and want like fun? 
It's right. Exactly. We we want we want distinctive entertainment, distinctive entertainment, and and advertising has become more avoided the more serious it's become. Is one of the, the hypotheses. Really interesting. Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming that's good? So um, we have, uh, yeah, we have we have both of those guilty as charged. Um, what I'm watching at the moment, I'm halfway through it. I'm I'm undecided whether it was worth the commitment, but I'm <laughs> I'm halfway there. Um, I'm watching a uh, a K drama, K- Korean survival drama, Niche. which is um is is. <laughs> Yes, no, but you, you, yeah, I, I guess they, they were hoping that it would be more popular. Who knows? It's called Squid Squid okay. Game, um, and it's about a, a group of people who are uh, put into an environment locked away where they have to complete challenges oh. or they will die. But there's the uh, the benefit of a huge okay. prize if they win. Uh, and the the like thing that games. actually is keeping me through it is uh, as as common to many things is it's it's more about the human drama yeah. than it is about the games. It's 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 not you know you're not going to be wowed by the excitement of yeah. special effects or anything like that it's the human uh connection between these people that are put into a very grisly uh scenario so that that's what i've been watching i've watched five episodes i don't know whether i'll watch all nine but i'm already halfway there <laughs> are you one of these people that has to if you start something you have to finish or can you stop things when they're just not very good so with with films and uh, this is really strange maybe but with films and tv um i always have completed the series if i've started with books if there are a series of books i have a habit if there's like three or four or five books in a series of delaying reading the last one sometimes Mm. for years and that's partly because i don't want want the enjoyment to end does does that make sense sense. you've committed so much you've put so much time and effort in going on the journey that i've still got that last book to look forward to yeah (laughs) so you never actually finish it but you never actually learn what the end of the story is as well (laughs) Love it. I know, I know, but isn't that that's that's part of life, really, isn't it? It is. It is. There is no end. What what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in an agency? So the advice I would give for anyone looking to to work in an agency is be the person they can't turn away. And if you're if you're that person enough, someone eventually will say yes to the point. And this is a really, really hard tip, but it's something that I've seen work very well to the point of offering to work for free for a limited period Mm. to prove yourself. That's really easy to say. It's not easy to be able to afford, but even if you're talking about four weeks, four weeks of your life, you know, if you can afford to go without uh, money for four weeks to be there and put that on your CV and to walk away, having done something that's already moved you on. Good point. Yeah. Great advice. And my final question, Kevin, what does it know about the world of agencies, effectiveness and marketing today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I wish at the beginning of my career that I'd known how much I needed to learn. I thought maybe it would only take like five years to learn everything. Uh, And here I am sort of 25 odd years on and I still don't know much. (laughs) Absolutely love it. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. A pleasure, Nathan. Great to meet you. We have been speaking with Kevin Segru. He is currently a consultant at SimilarWeb. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 140 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, advertising, brand building. Just go down the list. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be 
unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Tyler Baller is our booker slash researcher. Christoph Buaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. <laughs> <laughs>